0: The text is from John chapter 5, if you'd open your Bibles, please, to John 5, as we continue through the gospel, the wonderful gospel of John. Every week it might seem that we have kind of the same message, which is to display Christ before your eyes. And that's because that's the theme of the Gospel of John, is to display Jesus Christ before your eyes. Indeed, that should be uh, the purpose of every sermon, is to show Christ. John is committed to the theme that Jesus, the man, is truly God. So I want you to remember that He had flesh and blood when He was incarnate on earth. He came to earth as a real man. Flesh and blood. He looked like a man. He acted like a man. He was 100% man, but he was also 100% God. He was one with the Father and always has been. The very first verse of the Gospel of John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the theme of the book. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was God. And now in chapter 5, it seems that Jesus is responding to accusations as if He's in a court of law. The language He uses is the language of a courtroom. This is an important part of the Gospel. It's, it's John showing that Jesus didn't just come claiming to be God. He was God and He had evidence that supported that claim and He had witnesses as well. He had been con- confronted by these Pharisees who had charged him with a high crime, a blasphemy, charging him with claiming to be equal with God. But he didn't defend himself against that claim, he embraced that claim. And that's what we're seeing in John chapter 5 in this wonderful part of the text. You might wonder why he's using the courtroom language. And really it's for our benefit. And he says it was for the benefit of the Pharisees that they might believe. Courts and finding truth. This was an important part of the nation of Israel. So important that if you remember, one of the Ten Commandments specifically addressed giving false testimony. So important was finding the truth to the nation of Israel. And for that reason, Jesus is answering the charges placed against him as if he were in a court of law. He's been accused of claiming to be equal with God. And he defends it. He says yes. First, in verses 19-30, through he proved his equality with God. He said, I am equal with the Father. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. But now he's transitioning this legal argument to the calling forward of witnesses. In defense of his identity and divinity, in verses 30 through 47. Jesus himself doesn't need these witnesses. Him, him personally, he knows who he is, but he's calling the witnesses for the sake of the Jews. Last week, we talked about the first witness who was John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever was born to a woman. Now we're going to look at the other witnesses whom he calls before the Pharisees' eyes as well. I'll begin reading in verse 31. If you'd please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John and sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. and you do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the One whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Almighty and most holy God, we thank You for revealing Yourself to us in Your Word. And yet we know that we cannot even understand a portion of it apart from Your Spirit. Yes, we can read the words and maybe understand the meaning of the words, but we cannot understand it fully in our hearts unless You open our eyes and soften our hearts and unstop our ears. Please do that work this morning. Be glorified. In the preaching of your word, may you speak to your people this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We covered this last week in verse 31. Jesus says, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. It's important to remember that he's not saying that he's not to be believed or that he needs extra witnesses to be believed. He's just saying that in a court of law, you can't bear witness about yourself and stop there. Even the law of Moses says that two witnesses are required to prove any claim. So he's just submitting himself to his own law, the law that he gave to the Israelites thousands of years before. And what humility to condescend to the rules of the court that he himself had created. As if the one who was truth incarnate needed a witness. And yet this is exactly what he did. He says in John chapter 8, verse 17, again, another time when he's talking about the law and courts and witnesses. He says, even in your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So Christ knows that He has a greater witness and that witness is the Father. And really all of the other witnesses He calls today are subsets of the witness of the Father. So He's submitting to the standards of His own law and He's telling these people who want to kill Him, these rebels who would who would desire to destroy Him, all the ways that the Father also bears witness about Him. So He's calling witnesses. The Father's witnesses. John the Baptist was number one. Then he talks about the works, the miracles. The second witness. The third witness is the Father Himself. And the fourth witness, the Scriptures, the very Word of God. The first witness we discussed last week, I'm going to discuss it again just briefly. Verse 33-35. through You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Again, remember John at this time was the most popular man in all of Israel. He may already be in prison. We don't know exactly, but certainly he's the most well-known person, the most popular person in all of Israel. Everyone agreed that he was a prophet. Even the Pharisees agreed that he was a prophet. They wouldn't say it aloud, but they knew that he had come from God. After 400 years of silence, here comes John the Baptist calling all to repentance as the Old Testament prophets and even Christ Himself did calling them to repentance, to escape the wrath that was to come. He was investigated by the Pharisees and bore witness to the Pharisees and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He also said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when he saw Jesus coming. And then he says, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the testimony that John the Baptist gave to the Pharisees when they came to Him and asked, Who are You? And Jesus said in Matthew 11 that among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So the first witness for Jesus as presented to the Jews was the greatest man who ever lived. If you've ever been involved in courtrooms or know anything about courtrooms, it's so important to get testimony from the most distinguished witnesses you possibly can. You want your testimony, you want the witness that you call to be the most distinguished, respected person in the world. And it seems this is what Jesus has done. He's called John the Baptist the only prophet in the last 400 years, he's called John the Baptist, has witness number one. But it gets even more, more significant in witness number two. In verse 36 he says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So you're looking for human testimony. I give you John the Baptist, the greatest prophet, the greatest man to ever live. But I have something more impressive than that. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. What is a work or a miracle? What is He talking about? A miracle, first of all, presupposes the existence of God. Without God, there are no miracles. Because a miracle is something that only God can do. A miracle is God interrupting the normal means by which things happen in the world by creation and providence. Is God reaching into that, overriding the normal, ordinary second causes and changing something. But we use this word very frequently that this was a miracle. That was a miracle. I remember... Uh, when the F-22, which is a stealth fighter came out, everyone said, "Ooh, that's a miracle. That jet is a miracle. And I thought to myself, no, no, it's, it's actually not. The F-15, the aircraft that I flew, it was created around a radar. The radar was this, this monstrous ball of energy, and it just shot radar energy out. The idea of warfare in that day was see the enemy as far out as you can be able to target him as far out as you can and shoot a missile as far out as you can. And nobody had stealth technology, so building the biggest jet with the biggest radar, that was the name of the game. And that's what we did. The F-15 was just a a pilot sitting on top of two big motors and a radar and a lot of missiles. Well, then something happened. This this F-22 came along. And all of a sudden, the the rules had changed. It, It was a miracle. Our radar, which was supposed to see anything that was in the air, could not see this aircraft. It was a miracle, they said. It felt like a miracle too. Because our jet could see everything, but not that. The reality was it wasn't a miracle. It was just good old-fashioned science. Radar energy has to be reflected. It has to be brought back into the jet and processed. And if the radar energy doesn't come back, You don't see what's there. It was just science. It actually wasn't a miracle. Much of what we call miracles today is like that. The glory of a rainbow. It's actually not a miracle. It's beautiful to see. God has created rainbows, but there are scientific reasons why rainbows exist. The birth of a baby, the rescue of someone who's in danger, on and on and on. We call many things miracles that really are just part of the natural order. They might be wonderful. Yes, they're wonderful. They might be amazing. Yes, they're true. But do they actually defy the natural laws of science? No. They're just what happens. But Jesus came and actually did things that defied the laws of nature. Jesus came and did miracles. Well, we read in the New Testament that Jesus was actually part of creation. He created the whole world out of nothing in the space of six days by the power of His spoken Word. That's a miracle. Walking on water. None of us will ever do that. That's a miracle. Healing disease with a touch. Raising a man who had been dead for three days back to life. Those are miracles. Those are things that only Jesus did. He did more of them and He did the most significant miracles that anyone has ever seen. And Jesus says, these works are greater than John. They're the great, a greater testimony to my mission and to my identity. And let's make sure we understand what He's arguing. He doesn't say, these miracles prove that I'm God. That's not what He's saying. Although they probably do. But what he says is, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. They bear witness. Even Nicodemus in John 3 said, nobody can do the signs you do unless God is with you. So they bear witness that Jesus was sent by the Father. And this testimony is greater than John. John bore witness about Him in a powerful way but the witness and testimony of the works of Christ are greater. So the Pharisees should have seen the works and known that He was sent by God and believed Him. But no matter what Jesus did, they would not believe. We'll talk about that in a moment. Remember, they knew that He had raised Lazarus from the dead. This comes later. He raised a man from the dead. They all knew it was true. They knew the man was dead. They knew that he was alive again. Did they believe? No, they doubled down on their desire to kill him. And then they sealed Jesus' own tomb, and they knew that the tomb had been burst open and that it was now empty because the guards came back and told them. So there was another miracle. Did they believe Jesus then? No, they didn't. They didn't care. So, in one sense, we're not surprised that the miracles were a testimony that they rejected. They reject all of God's witnesses. Those who decide to reject the Lord. But the purpose of the miracles is the same all through the Bible. They authenticate the worker of the miracle as agents of divine revelation. That's what he's saying. God sent me. I'm the one you should be listening to. These these miracles bear witness about me. They've always performed the same function all through the Scriptures. They legitimize the purpose as one who speaks divine revelation to the listeners. They're the Father's testimony to His people. And in this instance, they're the Father's testimony of the Son's mission and divinity. Let's just talk about miracles for a moment. That's just a teaching point. The gift of miracles, this is absolutely unique. We all need to understand this. You might think in reading the Scriptures that miracles just happened every day. Every time you flip a page, there's a new miracle. But it's not true. Miracles are unique. They serve a specific purpose. And that's why those who claim today to do miracles, you need to stay far away. They're the greatest frauds who have ever lived. Has God authenticated these men who claim to do miracles, these women who claim to do miracles? These famous people, some of the most immoral people, some of the wealthiest people, gaining wealth from their supposed gifts. He's authenticated them as agents of divine revelation. Well, this cannot be true because number one, they're not miracles at all. None of them are verifiable. They're all psychosomatic kind of things. My headache stops. My pain in my back is better. There's no real miracles. No one's being raised from the dead by these people who claim to have the gift of miracles. And plus, the canon is closed. If these people really had a gift of miracles, if they were given divine power, then they're also given divine words to say they've been set apart by God to speak revelation to man. We should be writing down everything they say on behalf of God and adding it to the Scriptures. The miraculous gifts seen in the Bible though are very different. The miraculous gifts that Jesus did are very different. They served a very specific and mighty and holy redemptive purpose in God's plan of redemption. They authenticate the speaker and they say, listen to me. And they were actually very rare in the 4,000 years of biblical history. Very rare. Very few prophets actually worked miracles. And those prophets that were given the power to do miracles, had a very specific purpose in their divine message, to draw people back to to God. So of all people, of course, Jesus is that man who has been given power to work miracles so that all would listen to him and believe the message. We see even the apostles later performing miracles as the establishment of the New Testament church was, was being spread over all the earth. And in the early parts of Acts, you read of the apostles performing miracles and Paul performing miracles and people believing their words because of that. But even by the end of Acts, the miracles are ceased. You don't see any miracles in the end of Acts. They've already stopped. They've served their purpose. So all that to say, nobody today has a gift of miracles. Nobody has a specific gift of healing like Jesus did. But that's not to say that God still doesn't work without, above, and against the ordinary means at His pleasure. He can. He can do what He wants. We shouldn't be surprised if God uses doctors and medicine to heal people. But we should also never be surprised that God answers our prayers in a secret and mighty way for healing. He's still working. He's not a deist. He's not just winding up the clock and stepping back and hoping it works out. He intervenes in His creation all the time. How do I know that? Because people get saved. The greatest miracle of all is that a holy God could have fellowship with a sinful man greater than even the miracle of creation. There's no greater miracle. And if He still does that, I'm sure He's still doing other things in this earth. There's no embarrassment in praying for God to miraculously intervene in a situation in your life any more than there's embarrassment in praying for the salvation of a lost soul. We serve an act of God. He's a ruling king. He's subduing us to ourselves and still defeating all His and our enemies today. He's a mighty sovereign and He's not bound by any physical or natural constraints at all. But still the work of Jesus was unique. The work of Jesus in healing and doing miracles and doing mighty works, it's unique and it served a specific purpose. So this... As John the Baptist, he was the first witness. The miracles, the works of Christ, they were the second witness. But then he calls on the highest witness of all. The Father. This is the third witness in verses 37 and 38. The Father who has sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. This is the greatest witness that could be called for anyone. And he's speaking to the Pharisees, these people who claim to be part of this covenant community. These people who claim to know God as their father due to their descent from Abraham. But Jesus calls them out in John chapter 8 as well. In John 8.42 He says, If God were your father, you would love me. Because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but He sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? And then he tells them why. Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. There's no way they could hear the father's word. There's no way they could see his form. Or could believe any of the words of Christ because they were actually of a different lineage. They were of their father, the devil. This doesn't change the fact that the father is the greatest witness that anyone could ever have. And Paul just bursts out with exclamation in Romans 8 when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's like I told the children, God is our refuge and strength. Isn't it the constant pattern of your life to remind yourself of that? It is mine. Life happens, the world seems distracting, and you constantly have to pull yourself back and go, Lord, You are my refuge. You are my strength. This is the pattern of our lives on this earth. The church militant is constantly focused on pulling the glory back to God where it should be. And if God is for us, truly, who can be against us? So Jesus had the greatest testimony in the universe in the Father. And you remember during his trial? This is so neat. During his trial, does he speak a word at all? They accuse him and accuse him and accuse him. And what does it say? He didn't speak a word. He remained silent. The only time he speaks up is in Mark 14, 61. It's in the other synoptics as well. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? The Son of the Father, the Son of Yahweh. Then Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power coming in the clouds of heaven. It's the one time He speaks and it's to affirm that He is one with the Father. There's no greater testimony that anyone could give than God's own testimony, the testimony of the Father. The amazing thing too is for us who have faith in Christ, Brothers and sisters, this is good news. That testimony is ours. We someday will hear Him say to us who love Him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We also will have the witness of the Father. What a glorious witness that will be. So Jesus is called the Baptist, He's called the miracles, and He's called on His Father as witnesses. But the final witness was probably to the Pharisees the most damning of all the witnesses that He calls. It was the slam dunk of the witnesses. They didn't know the Father. They they discounted John the Baptist. They refused to see the works, but they did claim to know the Scriptures. It's the Scriptures, the Word of God. In verse 38, he says, You do not have this Word abiding in you, for you do not believe the One whom He has sent. Notice that for, that preposition, for you do not believe in the One whom He has sent. So I know you don't have the Word abiding in you, because if you did, you would believe the One whom He has sent. But for is really important. That preposition points back and it says you don't. You don't have the Word For you don't believe the One whom He has sent. That's Me. Jesus is saying, you would believe Me if you had His Word abiding in you. This was the biggest failure probably of all the failures that the Pharisees could be accused of because they claimed to love God's Word. And yet they failed to see their own Messiah. He was their Messiah. He was sent for the Jews first. And they did not see Him. They knew His Word better than anyone else on the planet. And they did not see it. They chose rather to focus on their own interpretation of the law of God. Their own interpretation of the Word. They understood the Word, the Scriptures, in the sense that they could read it and understand the words on the page. But they didn't have the Word abiding in them. They didn't believe the one Whom He had sent. Ultimately, they failed to see that the main purpose of this book, the main purpose of this book is Jesus. That's it. It's about Jesus. And they missed it. The Jewish people continue to miss it in large measure. God spoke to His people through the prophets, all pointing to the Son. They were all pointing forward. Pointing forward to Jesus. Hebrews 1.1, I love this Scripture. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. Remember, Hebrews is to the Hebrew people. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. They should have seen the Son. In verse 39, Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And they did. They believed that if they studied the Scriptures, the more they studied, the more sure was their life in heaven. And Jesus says, but it is they that bear witness about Me. Again, this phrase, bear witness, bear witness comes again and again and again in the Gospel of John. The Scriptures, He says, bear witness about me let me remind you too that the Pharisees were not liberals they didn't discount the scriptures they weren't like the Sadducees who just didn't believe the parts that mattered the Pharisees were the conservatives these were the Bible thumpers these were the men who loved the scripture they valued the scripture they debated important doctrines of the scripture And yet they missed Jesus. Jesus says the Scriptures should be the convincing testimony. You search the Scriptures, but you miss the fact that they bear witness about Me. Knowledge of the Scriptures themselves certainly has no saving power. You can read these words and understand them and learn them. There are men who have PhDs in theology and in Bible and are not Christians. Their hearts are darkened. We even see this in the scriptures. We see Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. He knew more about the scriptures than anyone in Israel. He couldn't even see the kingdom of God. His eyes had to be open. He was bound in sin and nature's night. He knew not about the Lord. But the Scriptures do have power. It's not to say they don't have power. They do have power to eternal life by the power of the Spirit. 2 Timothy 3 says, and This is Paul talking to Timothy. How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Scriptures do have power to eternal life, but it's by the Spirit providing faith in Christ Jesus through what you read. The Scripture's primary purpose is to testify about Jesus that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and have eternal life in Him. And all the Scriptures do point to Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, after Jesus had risen from the dead on the road to Emmaus, it says, "...in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself." Remember, the Scriptures for a New Testament believer was the Old Testament. Powerful Scriptures. Churches today that that forsake the Old Testament as some kind of old wine that doesn't need to be looked at, they're just not staying true to God. This was the Scripture for the New Testament believer. And it made them wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus used Moses and the prophets. That's the, the way of saying all of the Old Testament. He used all of the Old Testament to show all the things concerning Himself. He did the same to his apostles in 24, Luke 24, 44. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Again, that's summarizing all of the Bible, the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, the, law, the Bible at that time. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, that repentance and the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. We also read interesting things. Hebrews 11, for instance, shows us that the people of God in the Old Testament actually believed the Scriptures as well. They believed Christ, although they didn't know Christ the way we do. Hebrews 11, we read that Moses regarded disgrace. This is Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Moses knew God and wrote of Jesus. That's why later Jesus tells them if they believe Moses, they would believe him. You see, all the Bible points to Jesus, especially the Old Testament, it points to Christ. And all that He did on the earth was God's plan. And much of it was seen in the Scriptures. That the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Isn't it interesting too, when Paul summarizes the Gospel to the Gentile Corinthian church, how does he summarize the Gospel to this Gentile Corinthian church? He goes to the Old Testament. He talks about the Scriptures. Here's what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It's the Scriptures. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. They all bear witness to Christ. The Pharisees missed it. Six times in John's Gospel, he points in places where the Old Testament bears witness about Jesus. The synoptic Gospels do the same. He came to fulfill all things. When you read those fulfill all things kinds of phrases in the the Gospels, it's talking about Scripture that He's fulfilling. That all things might be complete. As a point of application, I would remind you that we need to learn the same lesson that He's teaching the Pharisees here as well. That our knowledge of Reformed doctrine or the study of our Scriptures in themselves mean nothing apart from the Spirit. They must push us to a knowledge of God as revealed in His Son by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you're just like Nicodemus. You know a lot of stuff, but you don't know God. You have full knowledge of the Scripture maybe, but without life. You're blind. Indeed, in all of Scripture, you can find Christ in some way revealed or prophesied when your eyes are open, you begin seeing it over and over again. But the Pharisees were not reading their scriptures properly. They didn't see Jesus. We should see Jesus in the scriptures. That's why when you wake up in the morning and you open your Bible, you should be so excited. There's something in the scripture you're about to read that will show you Christ. I don't care where it is. The Bible is the revelation of God concerning His Son who's our Redeemer. The grace of the Old Testament was a grace looking forward to their Messiah. Our confession says that these promises and prophecies in the Old Testament, these sacrifices and circumcision, the Passover, Passover lamb, and all the other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all pointed to the future incarnate Christ. And at that time, that was sufficient for the operation of the Spirit to instruct the elect in the knowledge of their Messiah who was promised and to come. The Pharisees had these same Scriptures and they should have recognized their Messiah. Let's conclude with verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to Me. Jesus finishes His arguments and He's saying, you refuse to come to Me that you may have life Have you ever heard of a kangaroo court? It's a court where the the result is already determined. It doesn't matter who your witnesses are. It doesn't matter the evidence. The outcome is already determined. You're not going to get a just outcome. And Jesus knows He's not going to get justice from these people. They're still going to try to kill Him. No matter how much evidence He gives them, they refuse to come to Him and have life. They refused to believe. Well, was it because the argument wasn't good enough? No, this was the most clear-cut argument. The evidence was perfect. The witnesses were perfect. There couldn't be a better defense for Jesus' divinity. They refused to believe. Well, was it a lack of convincing? Was it a lack of knowledge? Romans 1 tells us, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. In spite of all the evidence and all the witness to Christ they refused to believe. They suppressed the truth by their wickedness. And indeed, most people in the world continue to suppress the truth. No amount of evidence could convince these Pharisees to believe. They were determined to hate their Messiah. God does use evidence and argument in the Scriptures, of course, to persuade people to soften hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit. It can happen that someone is changed. Jesus made a perfect defense of the truth, but the will of these men were hardened. They remained captive to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they made a moral choice. It wasn't a lack of convincing, they made a moral choice to refuse their Messiah. Same thing happens today. People used to get really spun up about learning everything possible to evangelize we need to learn all oh, my apologetics perfectly have all the gospel laid out perfectly yes we should we should do those things we should work as hard as we can to be to be persuasive with the gospel but in the end if someone doesn't believe they're choosing not to believe they don't want to believe one of the most prominent atheists who's ever walked the earth was frederick nietzsche and he said before he died, if one were to prove this God of the Christians to us, we should be even less able to believe in Him. It is our preference that decides against Christianity. Not the arguments. It sounds like the arguments from evolutionists as well, doesn't it? It doesn't matter what evidence you give me. I'm not going to believe in your God. It's the same for people today everywhere who reject Christ. And even in church, there are many who know their Bibles, who know the contents of the Gospel, who have an intellectual belief, but they don't trust Christ as their Savior, as their Master. They don't treat Him as the pearl of great price. Jesus Himself said, if anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. To sell all that you have to purchase that pearl and hold it as precious. This is more than just a knowledge of what the Bible says about Jesus. This is a life completely centered on Christ. So today, brother and sister, today is the day that I ask you to renew your, renew your faith in Christ. If you have faith in Christ, wonderful. Lean into the Gospel. Believe the truth of Jesus. He's presented all the evidence that you need today. To believe that He is the Son of God. To have life in His name. If you do not do this and if you reject Jesus, if you continue to walk your own way, you remain condemned. And for those of you in this boat, how long will you continue to walk in your own way? My heart grieves when I think that there are some in this congregation who may not know Christ. Do you think you're just going to live forever? You have plenty of time to decide for Christ. You don't. You're not God. He could call upon your life today. Today is the day, brothers and sisters. Come to Christ. Don't just be knowing more and more information about God. Put your faith and trust in God. Don't play Russian roulette with your life. Paul said in Acts 17, your time of ignorance God has overlooked. And He commands you to now repent and prepare for judgment. So today, if you hear my voice, embrace the Gospel of Jesus. If you have faith in Him, embrace these promises that are precious to us. It's a great comfort. If you think your faith might not be real, then embrace Christ for the first time. He came and died for the very worst of sinners like me and like you. And He promises that if you have faith in Him, you will not perish, but have eternal life. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You that You have given us such great and precious promises. You've given us such wonderful evidence of Your mission, of Your identity. And as we read the Gospel of John, we're overwhelmed that You would be so patient and so kind to explain and reveal Yourself to hardened sinners like us. Lord, please forgive us. Please soften us. Please save us. Open our eyes to truth, we pray. And for those who know you now, Lord, may the gospel be so precious to us. May you reveal more and more of the glory of your name in the face of Jesus Christ. As we see Christ and as we see his work on this earth, as we see his love for the saints, as we see his great sacrifice and obedience to you. Lord, may we love him more.